Well, in this uh, chapter, we, we're coming to the end of uh, f- the second of five sections of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is split up into five parts, and all of those five parts end with a phrase that's very similar to what we see down there in verse 53 uh, of chapter 13, uh, where it says, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. And Matthew often has this phrase, when Jesus finished, usually it's saying these things, and then he moves on to another section of his gospel. And so we come to the end of this second section uh, this evening uh, of Matthew's gospel, and next week uh, we're going to do something a bit different. For a few weeks we're going to uh, look at the uh, prophet Jonah, partly in preparation uh, for Holiday Club, uh, but we're going to look at that together Uh, for a few weeks, and then we'll come back to the next section of Matthew's Gospel uh, after we've done that. But in this particular section, especially these parables in chapter 13, we've been looking at how Jesus has been teaching about the different responses that people have to the kingdom of heaven. And he does this using parables. And it explains why, as we have seen in the Gospel, there are so many negative responses to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, First of all, in chapter 13, he talks about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. People respond positively positively and negatively, and they live together. That's the the, the parable of the sower and the wheat and the weeds. It explains the nature of the kingdom. People respond positively, and they respond negatively, and they live together. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the power of the kingdom of God, although Uh, People may respond negatively very often, and although the kingdom of God looks very small, it is very powerful, and it will continue to grow. That's the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. But now Jesus explains how and why we should respond positively to the kingdom of heaven, to the message that Jesus is bringing. Why is it that we should respond positively? by following Jesus as our king. And when Jesus explains that in these parables, we see the priceless kingdom of heaven. He explains the kingdom of heaven in such a way that we are compelled to follow him because it is of more value and it is, more, it is greater than anything else. And we see that straight at, uh, at, the, at the start in, par- in the first two parables that we see in this next section in verses 44 to 46. So let's read uh, the first two parables. Uh, He says from verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. There are two parables here, the treasure uh, and the pearl of great value or pearl of great price, as some of you may know it. And the point of these two parables is really this. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. Nothing comes close to the value of the kingdom of heaven. And it's worth obtaining the kingdom of heaven, whatever the cost. That's the point of these two parables. Nothing comes close to the value of the kingdom of heaven. 
and it is worth obtaining the kingdom of heaven, whatever the cost. And we see that with Jesus giving the two examples in these parables. The first is the treasure in the field. Back in these days, people didn't put their treasure in a, in a bank like we might do. Uh, people didn't put their treasure like we may do in a safety deposit box. Uh, if they were going away for a long time, uh, they might bury their treasure in the ground, in a field. Uh, they would bury it well, they would cover it well, so that people would never know that they were walking across a field that had their treasure in it. Then they might go away for a while, and they'd come back, and they knew where their treasure was, and they could dig it up. Another reason why they would bury the treasure is because often in Israel, it was the land that was invaded. Or oftentimes, people came to try and conquer their land. And when they knew invaders were coming, the people with treasure, they would bury it in the fields so that when the invaders come and they plundered everything, they wouldn't plunder the treasure because they wouldn't know where it was. However, sometimes when the people uh, went away or when the invaders came, the owner of the treasure might die, in which case the treasure remained hidden. And that's the kind of thing that the man in the, uh, who was walking through this field found. It was hidden treasure, probably of someone that long ago had died or uh, from going away or from it being invaded. Uh, and he comes and he stumbles across this treasure. Uh, a similar kind of experience uh, happened recently in our own country. If you remember in 2009, not very far from here in Hammerwich, uh, somebody uh, didn't necessarily stumble across it, but they were searching for it, found the Staffordshire hoard, didn't they? Uh, and it's not an everyday occurrence that a, a, a treasure of this kind is found. And it was on the, the national news, uh, and uh, you can go and see the Staffordshire hoard. It's a, a, a great treasure that someone found uh, in 2009. Something like that, a, a find of that kind, causes great excitement. And that's what happens here in the parable. The man in the field, somehow, it doesn't say exactly how, uh, stumbles across this treasure. It doesn't uh, appear that he was looking for it, but he saw it and he recognized its value straight away. And so he hides the treasure again, and then he goes and buys the field with the treasure in it, making the treasure his. Now, this may sound a little bit uh, unscrupulous. Uh, what is this man uh, doing? Is he, is he a bit dodgy? You know, should he have told the owner of the field? Well, actually, at the time, this was a perfectly legal thing to do. But the point of the, the parable is not the morality of finders keepers. The point of the parable is that this man sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field because he knew that this was a worthwhile investment. He sold everything he had to buy this field because he knew it was a worthwhile investment. And that's why we read, look there in verse 44, that in his joy he went and sold all he had. It was in his joy. He didn't just miserably go and give uh, the owner of the field everything he had to buy it. He did it with joy because he knew what he was getting when he bought it. He got much more in return than what he invested, didn't he? He invested everything he had, but in return he got this field with this treasure, which was worth way more than the everything he had that bought the field. The merchant looking for fine pearls is very similar in meaning. 
Again, at this time, pearls were uh, probably the most valuable uh, uh, jewel, if you like, you could have. Uh, and people actually uh, would go around hunting for pearls. There were pearl hunters. And sometimes uh, they would go deep down into the sea, uh, holding their breath for as long as they can in order to get these pearls. They were so valuable, some people really did risk their lives and even lose their lives in the hunt for these really valuable pearls. Well, this man uh, was a merchant and he was looking for fine pearls. Uh, a merchant is someone who would buy and sell various items. He would have lots of investments and he was looking for an investment that was of great value, pearls. He doesn't stumble across the treasure or the, the pearl like the previous man. He is looking for it, seeking out a pearl of, uh, pearls of great value. And he does find one, but beyond what he even expects and can imagine, he found one of great value. And it was worth more to him than all the other investments that he had. And so this merchant did something which was very unusual for a merchant to do. He put all of his eggs, if you like, in one basket. He gave away all his other investments and put it all into this one pearl. Well, why did he do this? Why did he get rid of all the other investments that he had? Why did he get rid of everything to get this one pearl? Well, again, it was because he knew the value of the pearl. It was so valuable that any cost at all was worth paying to get this pearl. And again, he got much more than he invested. The value of the pearl was worth far, far more than all of the things that he used to buy the pearl with. Well, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. Some people, like the man in the field, may stumble across it, not looking for it particularly. Some people, like the merchant, may go seeking God's kingdom and find it that way. But however which way you find God's kingdom, those who recognize it for what it is find it to be of surpassing value. Like the treasure and like the pearl, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says here, is like nothing else. Nothing on earth can compare in value to the kingdom of heaven. Nothing that we can own, no relationship that we can have, nothing at all compares in value to the kingdom of heaven. Well, we have to ask the question then, what makes the kingdom of heaven so valuable that it is of surpassing value in comparison to everything else? Well, the reason that it's so valuable is this. It is only in the kingdom of heaven, under the rule of our king and our maker, that we possess what we as humans great, are our greatest needs. It is only in the kingdom of heaven, under the rule of our king and maker, that we possess what as humanity are our greatest needs. It is only in the kingdom of heaven that we receive forgiveness of sins that can give us a relationship with God. Forgiveness of all that we've ever said, all that we've ever done, all that we've ever thought can be wiped clean as we come into the kingdom of heaven. We can have a clear conscience in God's kingdom. Nothing else can give you that. 
It's only in the kingdom of heaven that we can have a relationship with God, our maker, that we were made for. Nothing else can give you that relationship with God. It is only in the kingdom of heaven that we can have peace and joy that come from a relationship with God. Nothing else can give you those things. And it is only in the kingdom of heaven that we can have eternal life. Life everlasting with God in heaven. Nothing else can give you that. These things are so valuable that you cannot obtain them yourself. Money can't buy them. Birth can't inherit them. Merit can't earn them. They are a free gift from a gracious God who sent his son Jesus Christ to purchase them for us by dying on the cross to pay for our sin. You cannot buy them. They are so valuable. But I've just said that they are a a free gift from a gracious God, but do you see in the parable that there is a cost? So how can it be that the kingdom of God, on the one hand we're saying, well, it's a free gift of God, but on the other hand, here we're reading that it cost them everything. Well, there is a, a transaction that takes place. In fact, the transaction is simply this, all that we have for all that God has. And actually, we'll come on to this to, to, uh, in, a, in a little bit, but it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer if you think about it, because God has so much more than, than us. But this is not purchasing salvation. But rather, to be a Christian involves living life in such a way that there is a cost to being a disciple. Uh, to explain this, let me illustrate. I think this illustration works. Uh, but think about um, Meghan Markle, the, uh, who recently married Prince Harry. Meghan Markle did not pay Prince Harry to be her husband. Uh, at least as far as I know. <laughs> I'm just assuming that she did not do that. Um, but even if she did, Prince Harry doesn't need Meghan Markle's money. He's a very wealthy man. He's the, the prince, uh, a, a prince of the realm, isn't he? She entered into the family without paying any money, but she knew there is a cost to enter the royal family, isn't there? There was a cost that she knew had to be paid before she entered into this family. There was a cost of her privacy. She is one of the most ph photographed women in the world. People follow her all over the place. She'll have bodyguards that follow her everywhere. There's a cost uh, even to her religion. She had to become a member of the Church of England in order to enter into the royal family. There was a cost, no doubt, relationally. People that she can no longer have relationships with that perhaps she did before because she is entering into this marriage with Prince Harry. That cost was not a payment to get into the family, but nevertheless, there was a cost, a sacrifice that was made to be part of that family. And the same is true for us. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to pay him in any way to become a member of his kingdom. But nevertheless, there is a cost in being part of his kingdom. There's a big difference, though, between the kingdom of heaven and the royal family. The value of the kingdom of heaven is so beyond comparison that any sacrifice is worthwhile to be part of it. 
And that's the point of the parable. So we've answered the question as to why is the kingdom of heaven of surpassing value, but what does it, uh, what, what, what sacrifices, if you like, do we need to make as citizens of his kingdom? What is it that we're giving as part of the, being in the kingdom of heaven? Well, the short answer, I think, is this. We give our allegiance. To be part of the kingdom of heaven, we give our allegiance. And that can be a, a real sacrifice because we have to give up our idols that we think will give us joy apart from God and we commit to obeying Christ no matter what. Now, this has so many applications that it's hard to know where to begin and end. But be sure of this, there is a sacrifice. So for just a few examples, for, for, for example, if you uh, give your allegiance to the idol of being liked by everybody, well, if you are in the kingdom of heaven, people are going to think you are strange as we live for Jesus. People may be offended by you as you share the gospel with them, as we're commanded to do. And you've got to give your allegiance to Jesus and say, it is far more worthwhile following him than everybody liking me. Or the idol of materialism. If we are as generous as Jesus Christ commands us to be with our money and our things, then there will be material things that we have to forsake and say no to in order to be generous. We have to say it is far more worthwhile being generous as Christ commands me than to have all of this stuff. Or if we uh, think we're going to be satisfied by giving our allegiance to the idol of instant gratification, we're going to have to sacrifice if we want to come into God's kingdom as we obey God's commands to, to wait for certain things like sexual relationships and sometimes even sacrificing romantic relationships as we are commanded to date believers only. And we say it is worth doing that because Christ is of far more superior value than a relationship that I think will satisfy me now. Or if we want to give our allegiance to the idol of comfort, we're going to have to give up some of that as we use our time and resources to serve God in his church and in our community as Christ desires us to, because we'll say it is of far more value to give up my comfort in order to serve Jesus because he satisfies me far more than my comfort does. And the list of idols that we get, could give our allegiance to can go on and on, but you get the point, you see? There's a sacrifice to be part of the kingdom of God. Now, there are lots more examples, but here's the key. The cost was paid with joy, with joy, because the people in the parables knew the value of what they were getting in return. They didn't miserably sell all they had. The sacrifice wasn't given with a frown because they knew the value of what they were getting in return. And the reason so often that we are not prepared to pay the cost is because we are not understanding the value of what we are receiving as being members of the kingdom of heaven. It is of far superior value than anything else 
And we are deceived into thinking that the cost is not worth it so often, aren't we? We'll hear uh, the enemy telling us, oh, you'll be bored serving in the church. Just spend that extra time just sitting around doing nothing on your own. Uh, you know, the, the Xbox can be so much more satisfying than serving in the church. Or you'll, you'll never find a Christian partner, so you'll never be satisfied. You'll never have a relationship. You'll never marry, and that'll be just rubbish. That's what you'll hear. Oh, I can't give my, my money to Jesus because I won't be able to do all these other things, and you're never going to be happy. Those are all lies. What Jesus challenges us to do here is to look through the lies and see that life under his rule is so much better. Because the reward for these people was not later on. Uh, it's not only uh, your reward is in heaven. They got their reward right, right away in a sense, didn't they? The man that bought the field got the treasure immediately. The man who found the pearl, when he paid the price, he got the pearl. So there is joy not just in the future so that we have to miserably serve Jesus, thinking, okay, well, it'll be worth it in the end. No, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is teaching here that we can and should serve him joyfully because there is joy now as we serve him. Now, that's not the same as saying, it is easy to sacrifice. There's not to say that it's always going to be happy, happy days every time I obey Jesus. But it is saying that there is true joy to be had right now as we give ourselves fully to serving in his kingdom. And of course, yes, there is more joy as we go on into glory. Of course, it's, it's better in the end but don't think for one minute that it has to be miserable Christian life now and I'll get all the joy later. That's not what it's saying. And the challenge for us is to, to think about what, what are those other idols, those other pearls, if you like, that are of lesser value that you are holding on to, that you won't let go of, that stop you from receiving the superior blessings of being in his kingdom. Uh, Paul the Apostle writes uh, very similarly to this in Philippians chapter 3, in verses 7 and 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because knowing Christ is of a far greater and far uh, surpassing worth than anything that this world has to offer. <clears throat> like the life of a Christian <coughs> is one of continual sacrifice in exchange for more and more kingdom blessings from God. And the more that we hold back from God, the more we lose out. But the more we follow Jesus and give our all for him, you can never give more than what you receive in blessings from our Lord. Nothing compares to knowing and serving Jesus. That's the point of the first parable. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything. 
And so the right response is to give everything, isn't it? But many don't see the value of the kingdom of heaven at all. Many think that the kingdom of heaven is worthless. And so rather than give everything, they reject Jesus as their king. And so Jesus goes on to speak of another parable. And here we learn that the kingdom of God of heaven means everything. Look at verses 47 to 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen poured it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I've been uh, fishing twice in my life. The first time I went, I caught nothing and was just rather bored. And the second time, uh, I was in France and we caught some eels, uh, which we had to have for dinner. And I like fish, but these were pretty revolting. Uh, Often you'll see people, if you go along the canal, sitting there uh, catching fish. I have never in the six or so years we've lived here, ever seen anyone on the canal catch anything apart from the occasional shopping trolley or various other delights. Uh, But they sit there for hours, don't they? And sometimes they don't even catch very much. Most of the time when we think of fishing, uh, this is what we think of. Uh, One man with a rod uh, throwing his line uh, into the water. But there's a different way of fishing, which Jesus uh, talks of here, which pretty much guarantees that you catch something, uh, and certainly fish, if there are fish in the lake. And that is this kind of fishing. Uh, These people in the picture are uh, holding what is called a drag net or a seine net. Uh, The picture on the screen shows uh, two people uh, holding what is a rather small net, But a dragnet can be very, very big. In fact, it can be up to half a mile long. And and that's the kind of net that Jesus is talking of in the parable. It is a huge net that is pulled out to sea uh, by a boat. And there are weights on one part which drag it down into the sea, uh, to the seabed, and corks on the top that make it float, which you can see up on the picture. Uh, And once the net is pulled out into sea, it is dragged back in a circle and it catches everything in its path. It is like uh, a huge wall that is going through the sea, uh, catching everything until it comes around uh, to the shore. And then when it reaches the shore, the net is pulled in and there are loads of fish in the net usually. Now, Jesus said in the parable that all kinds of fish were caught in the net. And in the Sea of Galilee, which is where uh, these uh, parables really are based, uh, there are about 20 different kinds of fish. And the Jewish people could only eat certain kinds of fish. And so they would go at the end of the catch, looking through the fish, and they would throw away the ones that they can't eat. They might throw them back into the sea, but they probably would just throw them away because they would have been dead anyway at that point. And the ones that they could eat, they would collect up in in water containers, and they would take them off to be sold. 
Again, the parable, I think, is quite straightforward to understand. The big point, really, of the parable is, is this. Uh, the net of God's judgment is drawing in. The net of God's judgment is drawing in. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us in all sorts of places that he is coming back again. The first time he comes as a baby in a manger and grows to be a man who dies on the cross to pay for our sin. And he rises again and he ascends to heaven. But he's coming back. But he's not coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming as a judge in the clouds. And Jesus says that when he comes again, he is going to judge. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, we, we, uh, we say this often, he's coming to judge uh, the living and the dead. And all people will be judged according uh, to how they have lived. And either you are going to be judged by saying, Jesus has paid for my sin, and you'll go to heaven. Or you'll be judged by saying, uh, I have to pay for my sin myself because I've not trusted in Jesus, and we go to hell. And Jesus says that that judgment day, which is coming, is like a net in the sea. It is being dragged out, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It's being drawn in. And we, as humanity, are the fish in the sea. Now, sometimes those fish in the sea are not even aware that this net is coming. Sometimes the fish might get touched by the net and swim away from it. But nevertheless, this wall, this net, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and there is no escape until Judgment Day comes. Now the fish that are swimming in the sea, they, they might think they are free to swim around, but they're not really free, are they? The net's still coming, whether they like it or not. And mankind thinks that they are free to do whatever they want. They're swimming around, living their lives, but this net is coming in. And at the end, Jesus says that they're going to be sorted out. All kinds of fish are caught up. There are going to be men and women. There are different nationalities, rich and poor, slave and free. But really, in verse 49, there are only two types of fish, the wicked and the righteous. And in verse 49, Jesus says that it's how it will be at the end of the age. That is, when Jesus returns and the net will be full and the angels will separate the wicked from the righteous. Well, who are the wicked in this parable? Well, the wicked are those who have done evil or those who have done wrong. They are separated out from those who are righteous. Now, there's a sense where actually we can be really glad about this because so many people think that they can get away with the most ghastly things, don't they? Murderers who think they've got away with it. They haven't. The net's coming in. Child abusers who think that what they have done is in secret and will never be known, that net is drawing in. All those evil leaders in history who died perhaps peacefully in their beds, no, the net's drawing in. The person who's caused damage in your life and got away with it, that net is drawing in. And so there's a sense that we can be glad about it, but there's a sense where it hurts, doesn't it? Because this applies also to ourselves, doesn't it? 
It's easy to think about the evil despot, but this is where it's really scary, because I have secrets, and I've done things that I would be horribly ashamed of to have displayed for everyone to see, where I have acted wickedly. All of us have things that we don't want anyone to know about. All of us have things that we think no one knows about, but God does, and he judges them. There is no place to hide. There is no escape. The net of God's judgment is drawing in. And if that's not bad enough, the parable gets worse because whilst the net of God's judgment is drawing in, it also teaches us that the wrath of God's judgment is terrifying. In the parable, we are told that the fish are thrown away. We're not told where, but we're told where the wicked are thrown, aren't we? Verse 50. Look at what it says, this, this terrifying truth. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, the, is, the, is a description of hell, a place of conscious punishment for the wicked. The, the descriptions there of blazing furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth are descriptions of the anguish and the physical and emotional torment of being in hell. It's a terrifying image that Jesus gives here. And that's the lot of the wicked when the net of God's judgment is drawn in. But there is two types of fish. There is the righteous. What what about the righteous? Well, they're not thrown into the blazing furnace, so, so who are they? Well, in one sense, we can say no one but Jesus, right? Because when I just described about who are the wicked, well, we've got to be very proud if we think that that doesn't include us who've done evil. But last month was Christmas time, and at Christmas time, we read Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. We should read it all through the year, but at Christmas time, it's in a passage that is often read. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 You will have a son, you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The net of God's judgment is drawing in, but there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The net of God's judgment surrounded him instead of us. He was judged for our sin so we can escape this coming judgment that Jesus talks of here. And because Jesus died in our place, the Bible teaches us that when we are forgiven of our sin and we we trust in that sacrifice for our sin, we are given his righteousness. The righteousness that was his is credited to our account, so we are declared right with God, righteous. And therefore, the righteous is not just Jesus, but it is all those whom Jesus has paid for their sin. And so that can be you. If you believe that Jesus has died for your sin and risen from the dead, and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you can escape this judgment. And so the kingdom of heaven really does mean everything. It means everything. It is heaven or hell. 
It is life or death. The kingdom of heaven means everything. Well, that parable is the last in a series in chapter 13 about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has been teaching uh, truth about God's kingdom to those who are going to be part of it, his disciples. He's, he's teaching his disciples here. But in verse 51, he asks his disciples a question. Look at the, the question in verse 51. He says, have you understood these things? They, Jesus asked. What, what are these things? These things are the parables he's just been speaking. Do you understand about the kingdom of heaven? Do you understand how it is worth everything? Do you understand how it means everything? And they said, yes. Yes, we understand Jesus. We understand that it's worth everything. We understand that it means everything. And so then Jesus tells them a parable about what they should do with their understanding that it's worth everything and that it means everything. And in this other parable, he teaches them this lesson. The kingdom of heaven is to be shared with everyone. Look at verse uh, 52. He said to them, Therefore, let every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his store, of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus uh, says here, uh, a teacher of the law who has become a disciple... He's talking about those who understand the truth of the kingdom are like teachers of the law who, who share God's truth or God's law with others. So it's not saying here uh, of the teachers of the law uh, that caused Jesus so many problems throughout the Gospels. What Jesus is saying here that our disciples, his disciples who understand the truth of his kingdom are teachers of the law. They are those who share this good news with others. And so he likens Christians, uh, those who understand the kingdom of heaven, to teachers, who, who, are, who, sorry, who are teachers, to a person who, has a, who owns a house that has lots of treasures in the house to share. The owner of this house was a rich person who in his storeroom just happened to have hanging around loads of treasures, maybe antiques or things like that. And it says he brings them out. And it literally means not just to, to bring them out so that I can show you uh, my really cool treasure. It means I bring them out and I fling them around or I, I, sh I shed them abroad. So the owner of the house is bringing out treasure to share with others in the house. He's a generous owner. He has much treasure and he's sharing it with those who are in need. And the treasure that we have is the truth about the kingdom of God. We know that it's worth everything. We know that it means everything. And therefore, as God's people, as his teachers of his law, we are to share it with everyone. The treasures in this house are both new and they're old. There's a number of uh, meanings that this could have. Uh, in one sense, uh, this means that there is Old Testament truth, which is given a whole new 
understanding in New Testament light. So, for example, the owner of the house might go into his treasure store. He might pull out uh, the picture of the tabernacle. And he might say, this is the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, it was where God dwelt. But now, in the New Testament, we see Jesus. This is what the tabernacle was pointing to. It's pointing to Jesus, the dwelling place of God. Or he might pull out his scroll of the the prophet Isaiah and all the, the wonderful prophecies Isaiah made about the Messiah. And he says, these are old prophecies, but look, look at Jesus. Look at what he's done that fulfills all of these things that were written about him hundreds of years before. We have old treasure. The, 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 the treasures of Scripture are very old, but in Jesus they are given whole new understanding. There's a sense that there is uh, the old truth of how we used to live, but now in the light of Christ, how he works in us, our life is given a whole new meaning. Things that perhaps we used to uh, used to treasure are, are, are used in different ways. So, for example, we, we might have always enjoyed our food and our sports and our music and so on. Those are old treasures for us. But now, as we get those out, we use them in the light of following Jesus. And they're given a whole new meaning. Old treasures that are made uh, new. But the point really is this. Whether... It's the Old Testament or the the New Testament, whether it's things we've done for a long time or things that we can only do now that we're Christians. The point is this, the truths of God's kingdom, that it means everything and that it's worth everything, the riches of that are to be shared with everyone. And we do that because it's so precious. God's word is the most precious thing that we have. It's the most valuable treasure that any of us have. Some of you may be very wealthy. Some of you may be very poor. But under Christ, we have his word, which is the richest and most glorious thing we can have. Psalm 19 verse 10 says this about God's words. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. We are rich if we understand the truth of God's kingdom. And because it's worth everything and it means everything, we ought to share it with everyone. Uh, As we uh, think of these parables, uh, over this last year, uh, we've had faithful uh, members of our church uh, go into glory. Uh, We've seen uh, in this last year uh, Mavis passed away and we've had Trevor pass away and, and Tony uh, his days are, are very short and I, I, if you ask these people was it worth following Jesus my whole life was it worth giving all of my time and effort to, to serve him they are all going to say yes God, it was worth it absolutely worth it and now as they stand before Jesus God, they're going to think it was worth everything They're going to say this means everything. And they're going to be so glad they were involved in sharing it with everyone. When you see Christians facing death, there's not one that will ever say any sacrifice I made was not worth it. They would only ever say, if only I could have given more. So, brothers and sisters, let's let's give our all for Jesus because it is worth it, isn't it? It's worth it. Let's not hold back because... 
we have to sacrifice in some way? No. As we, we think of those that have gone before us, we can remember that they'll know it's worth it. And we can know it too. And as we gather around the Lord's table tonight, we have this opportunity to share with each other the truth of Jesus' death. And we can eat and drink together, proclaiming his death. And we can do that in thanksgiving, that for him, he gave everything for us. Why don't we pray uh, before we sing? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much that the kingdom of heaven has been given to us and shown to us. Now, we don't deserve to, to know anything about you. And yet, Lord, in your amazing grace, you have revealed this to us. And even more amazingly, Father, you sent your Son, for whom it cost everything, that we could be part of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see the treasures that you have in store for us. And as we see those things, help us to give everything that we have for the glory of your name and for our own joy. In Jesus' name, amen.